Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Apologetic series, posted June 19th, 2019, titled, Were the Stories of Jesus Corrupted Before They Were Written Down? Mike Lacona responds. Look, the stories about Jesus were passed along, word of mouth, the game of telephone, Chinese whispers, what they call it overseas. And uh, so the, the, the stories itself got amplified and corrupted before they got put into writings, right? Wow, that's exactly it, Mike. I couldn't agree more. This is going to be the easiest video response ever. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you're new to the channel, please take a second to tap on the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. So we can see that once we have it in writings, what we have in writing uh, is very is essentially what was originally written. It, we can have a good confidence in that. I'm willing to grant this for the current discussion. It's my opinion that the textual corruption of the New Testament is more an argument about inerrancy and inspiration than about basic historicity. To me, the much bigger question is... Well, what about what was put in writing? Is that what was originally taught? No, that's a different matter. And the more important but related question of if what was originally taught corresponds to reality. Is it true? And the way I would answer that is that because you do have skeptics like Bart Ehrman and others that will talk about, you know, and the disciples said something and someone heard the disciples and they passed the story to someone else and someone else and this guy's wife heard it and she passed it to her friend who told her husband and he traveled, you know, to a different town and he told someone and, by, you know, by the time... You get to the Gospel of Mark being written 30 to 40 years later, the, the story has changed significantly. Yes, that is exactly what probably happened. So the, the, the way I would answer that is that scenario would require that shortly after Jesus' death, his disciples had to have gone off on some sort of a, a permanent religious retreat and were never heard from again. First of all, never heard from again? accurately describes at least nine of the 12 disciples after Jesus ascends to heaven. After showing up in Disciple Roll Call in Acts 1.13, the Bible never again mentions any action of Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, or Judas, son of James. James, son of Zebedee, gets a single mention, but just to tell us that he died. Of the 12, only Peter and John are mentioned again in the Bible. Church tradition about these men began centuries later in unreliable, apocryphal traditions. I'd invite you to read Dr. Sean McDowell's book, The Fate of the Apostles, to affirm that we do not know what happened to these men after Jesus ascended. In his discussions with me, Sean has put forth what other Bible scholars also argue about the word apostle. They affirm that Paul and other church fathers use the word somewhat fluidly as a generic term, not necessarily pointing to specific individuals. But they also argue that the author of Luke Acts always uses apostles to be synonymous with the Twelve. 
While I feel this argument is very much begging the question, if I were to grant that, all it would mean is that these men disappear into history in Acts 4, rather than disappearing in Acts 1. Regardless, yes, Mike, they were never heard from again. Second, Mike seems to be implying that no book could ever be written with inaccurate information as long as some human is alive who could correct the book. This is laughable on its face. Books are published every day containing huge errors, lies, and omissions that are correctable by other living human beings, but that go uncorrected for some reason. Or people do attempt to correct them, but don't have an adequate platform to do so. Or people just don't pay attention. People don't pay attention to corrections, they pay attention to the first headline. Lance Armstrong's 2001 autobiography, It's Not About the Bike, My Journey Back to Life, continues to sell very well on Amazon, despite being entirely discredited when in 2013 he admitted to cheating with steroids. James Frey's memoir about his harrowing 86 days in prison, A Million Little Pieces, was chosen for Oprah's book club, despite the fact that Frey spent only a few hours in jail. The major events of the story were fictitious, yet the book became famous as a true story. Relatively few who read it initially would have heard about the deception discovered three years later. Millions have watched Netflix's recent Last Dance documentary, but only a few heard Chicago Bulls historian Sam Smith's interview on radio station 95.7, describing areas where the documentary, and Michael Jordan himself, lied or fabricated details. Is this correction preventing the last dance version of events from being presented as truth in the mind of the populace? Not at all. Third, were Peter or John actually in a position where they could correct any exaggerated claims that made it into the Bible canon? Well, tradition holds that Peter was killed by Nero in 64 AD. And when does Mike think that Mark, the first authored gospel, was written. The standard dating is Mark about 65 to 70. Okay, so Peter was dead before the first gospel was written, which gives him no opportunity to correct it. And what about John? Some traditions hold that he died of old age, but those same traditions hold that John was the author of the Gospel of John. Apologists tend to insist that the author of John was unaware of the other gospels, in order to hold it up as an independent source. In this scenario, John could not issue corrections to books he was unaware of. Can't have our cake and eat it too. On all sides, the argument that disciples would have told us if there were exaggerations is ridiculous and ultimately an argument from silence. It's entirely possible that disciples were out there every day disagreeing with the Gospels, but those objections simply didn't survive until today. Paul's letters and the book of Acts discredit such a view because they inform us that the Disciples of Jesus were out publicly proclaiming about Jesus, his resurrection, and his teachings for at least a few decades after his death. No, 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 not at all. Even with the most charitable reading of the word apostles, there is no preaching from the group past chapter 4, which is well before Paul's conversion to Christianity, estimated to be five years after Jesus died. I don't know how less than five years becomes at least a few decades. None of the letters attributed to Paul in the New Testament tell us that the disciples were out preaching publicly. I even reached out to Mike to clarify what passage he means. But as far as I know, the Pauline letters make no such claim. And that brings us up to the very time the Gospel of Mark was written, right at the doorstep of when Mark was written. I don't know what you mean by doorstep. 
but even by your own numbers, Mark was written 15 to 20 years after Paul's letters. You're telling me no story can be exaggerated in 15 years? Is that what we are to believe, Mike? It would also assume that the gospel authors lack the desire, they lack the sense to sift through traditions about Jesus, filtering out those that, uh, that were of questionable pedigree and, and origin, and uh, that they had no desire just to retain those that were known to have been rooted in eyewitness testimony. Your Honor, we object at this point. The witness is speculating. Why should we assume that they had a desire to sift through such things? As Mike will attest in a minute, the gospel authors had obvious theological goals in these writings. Why would we assume that they valued historicity over theology when the authors of the later gospels felt free to change details to enhance a theological point? And to assume the oral traditions had root in eyewitness testimony is to beg the very question being asked. Are the gospels based in eyewitness testimony? This isn't how to conduct an investigation. This is how to create a story to affirm your narrative. Maybe it's a correct inference, but it's still merely inference. Another thing is we can test things at times. Like, for example, Paul writes 1 Corinthians somewhere around the year 55, maybe a couple years before then. And when you look in chapter 11 at the Eucharist sayings, um, and you compare that with Gospel of Luke that's written, who knows, you know, somewhere between 5 and 35 years later, it's, they're virtually word for word. So we can see that oral tradition was being passed around and kept in its integrity. Object! The witness is speculating. Mike believes that the Gospel of Luke was written by a traveling companion of Paul. So in his world, he's imagining that the most reasonable explanation for a student's writings lining up with his master's writing is that there's a consistency in some external tradition, rather than the obvious, that the student is most familiar with his master's version of things, or that the student would massage things to match his master's version. We're both inferring things, which sounds more plausible. We can also compare how Matthew and Luke use Mark, and we can see that when they are using Mark, they stay so close to Mark. Yeah, they will edit him at times. They'll improve his grammar. They will make some theological moves and things like that. As promised, Mike affirms theological motivation for gospel author choices. To what extent were they endeavoring to record history, and to what extent win converts or promote their flavor of Christianity? We can only speculate, but we know it wasn't purely history. But they stick closer to Mark than Josephus even sticks to Scripture. An interesting argument from, my guys plagiarized more than your guy. I know that's not exactly it, but how is this adherence related to the thesis topic that we can know whether the legends of Jesus grew before they were written down? Later copying demonstrates later copying. It doesn't demonstrate the accuracy of the original. This is begging the question, including a conclusion in your premise. Speculation. Here's the story. While Josephus himself was a Jew, he defected to the Roman side and was under a Roman commission to write his historical works in the language of the Romans, an audience likely not particularly picky about their Hebrew scripture quotations. Why is this? Well, because most likely because they really valued the Jesus tradition and uh, didn't feel a liberty to change the essence of, of what was saying there. Object, speculation. How exactly is this most likely, Mike? This is speculation. Here's the story. How did you compare this against the likelihood that they were lazy? How did you compare this against the likelihood that they simply didn't have another source for these stories? Which would be embarrassing since Matthew was allegedly an eyewitness. How did you compare this 
against the likelihood that the authors of Matthew and Luke were hoping their versions would supplant the Mark version that was being read aloud in the churches, and that piggybacking off of familiar material would be a good way to gain traction. I like Mike, but it's frustrating to have him declare his speculative, motivational inference as most likely. Also, John's Gospel strays widely from Mark, so we're in a world where very similar to Mark and very different from Mark are both evidence for historicity, according to apologists. Heads I win, tails you lose. I would also add that we've got some really good evidence for, let's say, um, the authorship of Mark's gospel. Oh, do we? Our earliest source comes from a guy named Papias. This is partially correct. Our earliest source is a man named Eusebius, who quoted Papias here and there. We don't have the actual writings of Papias. And it's really uh, debated among scholars when Papias wrote, but somewhere between the first decade of the second century and the year 150, with most scholars opting around 130. I think that's a little late, but let's just go with 130. I have no problem with that estimate, but keep in mind that we don't have Papias's writings. We have Eusebius's writings from around 320 AD, nearly 300 years after the death of Jesus, and 200 years after Papias wrote. That's all fine, but let's be real about the dating. Obviously, the only reason anyone would quote another person is because they consider them completely truthful and accurate, right? Why would anyone quote someone they felt is unreliable? So I took the initiative in creating the internet. Dinosaurs lived beside people about 6,000 years ago. Well... Turns out Eusebius himself calls Papias a man of very small intelligence and characterizes his work as including strange parables of the Savior and statements of a rather mythical character. We already have conflicting death stories of Judas in the Bible, but according to Papias, Judas swelled up Violet Beauregard style and couldn't even fit in a wagon. But instead of blueberry, Judas was filled with pus and urinated worms. Sounds legit. What we know about Papias is that he's not considered smart, makes up details, and most of what he said is unanimously rejected by scholars new and old. But by all means, let's find out what he has to say about the author of Mark. So Papias said that he received information about the authorship of Matthew and Mark. He got it from an associate of John the Apostle. And he got it from this associate, someone who knew John the Apostle. He got it from this associate while John was still preaching. To be clear, we are to ignore unreliability in other places and now take Papias seriously because he claims to be friend of a friend of John. <laughs> a friend of a friend of a guy you used to date? No, that's not a credible source. I am your father's brother's nephew's cousin's former roommate which says that Papias got this information from someone who knew and traveled with John in the latter part of the first century, just a few decades after Matthew and Mark were written. That's amazing. Whoa, Mike. Before we declare this to be amazing because of the speculative timing and self-authority promised by an acknowledged exaggerator, can we take a second to see what he says that has you so excited? When Mark was the interpreter of Peter, he wrote down accurately everything he recalled of the Lord's words and deeds. Mark did nothing wrong by writing some of the matters as he remembered them, for he was intent on just one purpose, to leave out nothing that he heard or to include any falsehood among them. 
It's interesting that Papias says Mark's purpose was to leave out nothing that he heard and then associate that description with the shortest gospel, the gospel with the fewest stories, or pericopes as the New Testament scholars like to call them, and is the gospel with no birth narrative and no post-resurrection appearances. The truth is that since Papias doesn't quote the book that he's attributing to Mark, we have no idea if the gospel found second in our New Testament is the book he's referring to or some other document altogether. Based on his description, there's little reason to think it's the same one. It wasn't until 50 years after Papias that we have the first connection between the name Mark and the contents of our second gospel, even though that second gospel was quoted by church fathers for decades without attributing it to Mark. Wow. What we have for, let's say, at least here, Matthew and Mark, is just superb. 300 years after Jesus' death, we have an author quoting another, prone to exaggeration author, from 200 years before that, who describes a book that a friend of a friend wrote in a manner that doesn't match the book we're talking about. And that's the superb evidence that Mark wrote our second gospel. You and I have very different ideas about superb, Dr. Lacona. So, to sum up, Mike was asked if the stories about Jesus might have become exaggerated before they were written down. And his answer was that, one, the disciples totally would have said something if there were exaggerations in the Gospels, despite disappearing from history and probably not being alive at the time. Two, there are a few vague things written down only 20 years after Jesus' death that are the same as what was written down 40 years after Jesus' death. So obviously nothing could have been exaggerated in those first 20 years. Three, the guys who wrote things down 50 years after Jesus' death copied the guy who wrote things down 40 years after Jesus' death. So obviously nothing could have been exaggerated in those first 40 years. Four, Mike has read the mind of the guys who wrote things down to confirm that they super wanted to be historically accurate in writing down the stories they didn't witness. Therefore, the stories couldn't have been exaggerated in the 40 years prior to the author's hearing of them, for some reason. And number five, the friend of a friend of someone who might know said that the guy who wrote things down 40 years after Jesus' death knew a guy who knew Jesus. So obviously nothing could have been exaggerated. And yet somehow, I'm not convinced. Are you? Or have I misread Mike's position? Let me know in the comments. Now, might I recommend this video where we take a look at more of the New Testament claims. I'll see you over there. Until next time, later.